Morning, everyone. Um, you can turn in your Bibles just to get a little bit of a head start to Psalm 51. I had some technical difficulties this morning, so I couldn't print off the little insert. Um, there's Bibles in front of you, or if you have an electronic device, you can look it up online. Psalm 51 is where we're going to end up. But I want to start with a, a question this morning. You don't have to yell at the answer. There's not really a wrong answer, but just, just kind of get the wheels turning. Um, what would be the one spiritual discipline, the one practice that if you did it would have the greatest positive impact on your spiritual life? It's not an easy question to answer. Think about all the things you could do. What would be the one that would have the single largest positive impact? Um, I don't think there's necessarily a right answer, but I think I've been thinking about that question as I've been moving through the Psalms, and I've come up with one, and it's not one that I would have, I would have answered initially uh, when I first became a Christian, or probably even in my 20s, but I think as I move through my 30s, and I'm kind of getting a different perspective on what it means to follow Jesus, there is one that has kind of crept onto my radar that has kind of gone from the um, circumference to the center. And that practice that I, I could think I could make the argument it might be number one is the practice of repentance. Repentance. And the reason I think that that is, at least for me, my current number one, is that you could do all kinds of other spiritual habits, reading your Bible, praying, fasting. But if you're not doing it in and through a heart of repentance, I I'm not sure how much room God has to maneuver. Um, I think you really constrain God when you're even doing good practices and disciplines without a repentant heart. Now, I want to explain what that word means because that's a really loaded Christianese word. Uh, repent comes from the word repentance, which in Greek uh, is translated metaneo. And it's, it's kind of the word through which we get metamorphosis, but it refers to a change of thinking that changes what we're pursuing. So it's not just like a new idea, like I've come across something and I'm going to think differently. It is that, but to a Jewish mind, um, thinking differently is evidenced by living differently, by pursuing something different than what you were pursuing. So repentance isn't just changing your mind about, well, I had these ideas and I'm shifting to these ideas. It's more like a worldview. I kind of understood and perceived the world this way, and now I realize I'm, uh, that's not truth, that's not good. I'm going to turn from that. I'm going to turn from those ideas and pursue a different path. So it's kind of a holistic idea of changing your mind. It's changing your whole outlook and your whole pursuit. Now, when people th hear the word repent or repentance, sometimes they, that gets conflated with the word re remorseful. But there's a difference between being remorseful and being repentant. Remorseful is just feeling bad about doing something wrong. It's a good thing to have remorse. But repentance is different than that. Repentance is about deciding to turn away from the actions that led you to being remorseful. Remorse is, ah, oh, shucks, like, oh, I feel bad about that. Repentance is, yes, I feel bad about that, and I'm going to change the direction of my life because I don't want to actually do that again. I want to move in a different direction entirely. I want to move away from a self-centered way of living, which is what led to this outcome, and I want to 
go towards a God-centered way of living. I don't know exactly what that all looks like and entails, but that's the path I want to be on. Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, he had a pretty famous line where he said, all of the Christian life is repentance. All of it. Repentance is something so central to what it means to be Christian that Martin Luther, uh, one of the earliest reformers, said, you can't even really describe what it means to be a Jesus follower without including somewhere along the line this call to repentance. Now, I know that for a lot of people, the word repent, and certainly culturally, that word repent has been co-opted often by, I think, well-intended evangelical Christians I'll give, them, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt, um, who use the word to intimidate, to um, threaten, right? To you know, threaten people with the good news. Um, maybe use it in a very condemnatory way. And so culturally, I think if you were to stop 10 people on the street in Nelson and say, what's your emotional reaction to the word repent? They would probably be like, oh gosh, that's like, some kind of judgmental, condemnatory thing that Christians do or they talk about it. I've seen it on placards or, oh, it's just awkward. I don't, I don't want anything to do with it. Which is really, really heartbreaking because the practice of repentance is so powerful. And the word and, and uh, the, the, what can happen when, a, when someone chooses to repent is so hopeful and beautiful. Um, it's so sad that it's going to get tied into this very negative, condemnatory threat as opposed to, I think, what we see in the scripture, which is a liberating invitation, an invitation to turn around, to begin to think differently because the path that you're on is going nowhere and there is hope to turn your life around. There is a power that can get you unstuck from cycles of sin and patterns of self-destruction um, and um, self-loathing and guilt and, and, um, and oppression and suppression. And that's what the call to repentance biblically is about. It's a call to change from a way of living that's going nowhere to God's way, which leads to thriving and leads to flourishing. I think if people learn to repent, here's kind of my thesis. And I think Psalm 51, when we get there, is going to bear this out. If you learn to repent, there is no situation that you could put yourself in because of your own stupidity or self-centeredness or sinfulness that God couldn't get you out of. If you learn to repent, and if you learn to practice this spiritual discipline, you will always have hope. You will never encounter a situation that is objectively hopeless or insurmountable. And Psalm 51, I really believe, grounds us in that hope. A lot of scriptures do, but Psalm 51 is a big one for that. Psalm 51 is probably one of the, um, if you've been, been in church for a while, you've probably come across, it, come across it in some way, shape, or form. It's right up there for me. Uh, I think it's right up there with number 23. Uh, I, I struggle with how to approach this psalm because it is so rich that you've kind of got eight to ten sermons in here. But I want us to read it through the lens of allowing it to teach us how to repent. How do I actually learn to turn my life around and away from patterns and paths that lead to destruction onto God's paths and pattern which leads to life and flourishing and thriving in, 
my own heart and just in my own psychology and in my marriages and in my relationships and my vocation, what I do with my job. That is possible. God wants that for everybody. How do I access that? I want to set some context for Psalm 51. Some of the Psalms have context. There's a little heading at the top that kind of says, this is kind of what's going on in the Psalm. A lot of the Psalms don't, though. They're just kind of Psalms that kind of drop and like here they are. And you can kind of piece together maybe what was going on by reading the Psalm. Psalm 51 gives us a huge background. It says that it's a Psalm of David and it came in the time when Nathan the prophet came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So there's a context to the psalm, and I'm going to um, introduce you to the context first, or remind you if you haven't heard the story in a while, and then we're going to read through the psalm. The context is 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. So I'm going to give you the short version, kind of the Coles Notes version of that. So you have King David, and if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, this is the same David that's like the David and Goliath guy, but he's a little bit older now. That was when he was younger. David is now a king. He's ruling as a king over Israel, and he's into his reign by, I think, uh, maybe 15 or 20 years. And David begins to play with this idea that he's a king, but he's not under the king. Like he is the king. He's the king. And you kind of see evidence in the text that he's kind of growing with this idea that, like, he's kind of above the law. Normal me- measures of accountability don't really apply to him. He's a little bit larger than life. He's a king who doesn't have to play by the rules. He's put in his time. He's immensely popular. The kingdom is flourishing under his rule. God is blessing Israel. They are militarily strong, economically strong. And David is kind of shifting into a kind of a pseudo-retirement mode of like, well, I've put in my time, and now I want to reap the benefits of all these blessings. This is my time now. And I get to indulge a little bit because I've had a lot of sacrifice. There's been a lot of hardship and hard work leading to this point. And I kind of think this is, you know, this is time to focus on me a little bit. So, in a season where kings lead their nations into war, 2 Samuel 11 says David assigns someone to do that, and then he stays back in Jerusalem. And he is really doing that because he's like, you know what, this is a young man's game. I've, I've done my time. I'm now going to enjoy the benefits of my power and my privilege. And other people can kind of do the dirty work of fighting and putting their life on the line. I'm the king. That, that's a role, isn't it? I mean, that, that, their role is to serve and protect me. I'm most protected when I'm in Jerusalem. So I'm going to hang back. And I'm just going to take life easy. And he spies a woman uh, one evening bathing on a roof And he finds out who it is, and after being told it's the wife of someone named Uriah the Hittite, David sleeps with her and gets her pregnant. There's nothing in the text that would even come close to alluding to the fact that that sexual engagement was consensual on Bathsheba's part. It likely was not consensual. It was likely not a violent rape. Um, But when you have the king telling you, inviting you into his chambers and basically telling you what he would like to do. A woman in that context doesn't have a lot of power to say no to that. So this is not a consensual sexual act. This wasn't two people coming together. This was David saying, there's a body. I want that body. I want to use that body for tonight. Sleeps with her, sends her away. Thank you very much. Wants to just, 
wash his hands of it. But then she sends him a little text message, uh, I'm pregnant, and now things begin to really spiral out of control. David's like, um, okay, how do I cover this up? What do I do? So what he does is he sends a note to um, uh, um, Joab, and he says, I want you to send Uriah back. Uh, just give me a report on how things are going. Uriah comes back. David's like, how are things going? How are the men? Like, how, how's it gonna be, how, how are things going? And uh, Uriah's like, like, good, but fighting is still pretty fierce. And David's like, great. Anyways, while you're here, I'm a good king. Like, I appreciate what you're doing for me. Why don't you just like take a few nights and, and come back home um, go wash your feet, which is kind of a euphemism for like relax with your wife. Like just go enjoy. You've been you've been a long time on the road. Just go home, enjoy sexual bliss with your wife. And your eyes like, uh, no. How could I do that? Like all my comrades are like fighting in the war. We're we're fighting for you, David. I took a vow. I'm not going to return and enjoy any of the fruits of. I'm not going to live as if I've. Uh, as if we've won the war while we're still fighting the war, which is this huge indictment of David, because that's what David's doing, right? So for a number of nights, David's trying to get um, Uriah drunk, and he's trying to entice him, and he's trying to stack the deck in his favor to make something sexual happen, because David wants Uriah to sleep with Bathsheba, because then David can say, he can kind of get out from under the scandal. Oh, it must have been, you know, Uriah's um, child. Uriah won't do it, even when he's drunk. Even when he's drunk, he has more integrity than David, and he's constantly just sleeping outside of um, his home. So David realizes this isn't going to work. So he's like, well, sends a note to Joab, says, I want you to put Uriah, when he comes back, right to the front lines of fighting, where the fighting's fiercest, and then when the enemy gets really close, I want all the other men to draw back, which is going to mean that the enemies are going to surround Uriah and he's definitely going to die. So that's what happens. And then he gets sent a note, and he says, this happens, and David's like, okay, this is great. Uriah's dead. Why is that great? How does that help? Here's how it helps. There's now a poor war widow named Bathsheba, and her husband tragically died. What can David do? Do you want to know how great a king I am? How merciful and compassionate I am? I'll take her to be my wife. Because no one in David's kingdom should, be, um, should have to face that kind of, of mourning. So he waits for Bathsheba um, to finish her time of mourning, and then he marries her. Really just to cover up everything, so that, he can, so that when the baby comes, he can say, yeah, we just happened to get pregnant pretty quick. And that's just kind of the way things go sometimes. So he's constantly trying to spin himself out of the sin, out from underneath it, and he resorts to adultery and, and, and murder and deception. And you know what's really, I mean, some of you know that story, and what I learned a few years ago just drives a knife in it even more. There's, a, there's an element to the story that is very, very twisted and amps up the level of betrayal. When David is young and he's anointed as a king and he's not the king yet, but people are really starting to, he's becoming very popular and people want him to be king as opposed to Saul. Saul tries to kill David and David has to go on the run and there's 37 men who are called David's mighty men and they form around him and they pledge him their, their lives and they say, we're gonna protect you. It's kind of like Robin Hood and his band of merry men and they're on the run from the, from the current king but they've pledged their life to protect God's anointed king and in Samuel, it lists those people, it lists who David's mighty men are 
And one of the names that are listed is Uriah the Hittite. As bad as all that David did, it's amplified to an almost unbelievable degree when you realize this was likely a very close friend who had been putting his neck out on the line for David for decades. One of his most trusted friends, his wife, and I remember when David found out who it was, that didn't stop him. Oh, it's Uriah's wife? Yeah, still bring her forward. So this is a tremendous betrayal. This is um, a place of real darkness in David's reign where he's exhibiting massively selfish and sinful acts. Adultery, he murders Uriah. He's trying to constantly deceive and lie and cover up the whole thing. And then he's, he's, he wants to, he intends to carry on as if nothing happened. He, he would be okay with saying, yeah, passes in the past and no one needs to know and we'll just move forward. About a year passes, the child's born, and God sends a prophet named Nathan um, to confront David. And Nathan tells David a story. He says, there's two guys in the kingdom. One's very poor, one's very rich. The very rich guy's entertaining people from out of town. And he has so many animals and like, he has so many food resources, more than you could even count. But this rich guy in your kingdom, David, he went to this poor man who only had one lamb. He only had one and he loved this lamb. He would sleep with it. He loved it as if it was his own child. And this rich man, David, in your kingdom, this man took this man's lamb and he slaughtered it for this feast. And the text in Second uh, Samuel says David's enraged. And David's like, as surely as I live, this man deserves to die. He's, he's, he's doing the death sentence on this guy. And David is just incensed at, the, at that kind of injustice, that someone in his kingdom would so brazenly act like that. Such an obvious... Um, I mean, textbook injustice and exploitation. And in one of the most cutting, damning, powerful lines in all of Scripture, Nathan looks at David and he says, you're the man. That's you. You're the man. And the Scripture says, David is cut to the heart. David, at that moment, the full weight of everything that David has done, all the cover-up, all the sin, all the rationalization, all the justification, it all breaks apart. And the full weight of guilt and shame just crashes upon David's soul. I want you to think about how David would feel in that moment. Um, not just to know before God that your worst sins have come home to roost, but now it's public knowledge. You know, TMZ got a hold of your worst stuff. And it's being broadcast all over the internet. You can't go anywhere. Everybody now knows uh, the whole cover-up, knows the whole sham. Think about the kind of emotional pit David is in. How do you get out of a pit like that? How would you ever recover from something like that? That is like, that's about as close to a death sentence as you can get in terms of like, how would you possibly move forward with any sense of this um, hope for a new kind of life or, or even just to move forward? The self-loathing you would have, the shame you would have, the guilt you would have. How does David not collapse under the weight? How does what he did in God's judgment not crush him completely? And the answer is Psalm 51, which is what David writes 
after he's confronted by Nathan. And Psalm 51 is a guide to repentance. David repents. And in repenting, David finds new hope for new life. And despite his past, despite the massive, inexcusable wrongs that he committed through repentance, David takes hold of a new life. And he has a future. And he can progress. Let's, Let's read it together. Psalm 51. Do you mind, Marvin, do you mind just cycling through while I read it? And then I'll pick up the, uh, the clicker once I'm through. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God my Savior and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, God. God will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings, offered whole, and then bulls will be offered on your altar. Four things Psalm 54 teaches us about repentance. The first one is the earnestness of repentance. In verses 1 to 3, David gets really honestly serious about the nature of his sin. He says, for I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. He's not like, yeah, I kind of messed up a little bit, made a mistake. Sorry, God. Whoops. He doesn't treat his sin like it was a little speed bump. He understands what he's dealing with is something tremendously poisonous and corrupt. And he doesn't try and gloss over it. He doesn't try and rationalize it. He doesn't try and minimize it. And he's saying, I don't just want forgiveness for sin. He says, I want you to remove sin from me. And repentance starts when we confess our sin before God, but not just a lazy confession. It's like, yeah, I kind of admit I screwed up God. Sorry. But a confession that comes from saying, what I've done is wicked in the sight of God. It's led to incalculable pain in my relationship with God, others, myself, my uh, relationship to creation. And because of that, David isn't like, oh, would you just forgive me, God? Hope that doesn't really happen again. But just, just, yeah, give me a do-over. Give me a mulligan. He's like, I want you to remove sin from me. 
David is thinking here about, I don't want this to be part of my life anymore. I don't know about you, when I first became a Christian, there were definitely sins in my life that I knew I should confess to God, that I knew were wrong, but I didn't really want God to take them away yet. Right? St. Augustine, Lord, give me chastity, but don't give it yet. Just a little bit of time. <laughs> That's not David. David's heart for repentance starts with confession, and he's like, I, I don't want to be walking this path anymore. And then David talks about the essence of repentance. In uh, verse 4, he says, against you, you only have I sinned. Remember, that there's no commas in Hebrew, and you see a you, you there, right? Against you, you only. What happens when there's two things, word repeated in Scripture? What does that mean? It means emphasis. David's like, against you I sinned. Like, just you. It's you. You are ultimately who I sinned against. Which is kind of strange. Because he raped someone. And he murdered someone. And he tried to deceive the whole kingdom. David is not literally saying, well, I only sinned against God. I only owe confession to God. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, at the end of the day, the person I primarily offended is God. See, that's why if some people today were to say, well, this is not bad. It's not hurting anybody. I didn't hurt anybody because of my sin. David would say, oh, you don't understand actually sin then. Because sin is first a complete offense against the holiness and the goodness of God. So even if you didn't hurt anybody with your sin, even if you got away with it, you should still be coming before God and saying, against you, you only have I sinned. David wasn't trying to minimize the, the, the horizontal impact of his sin. He was just starting with the vertical and saying, if I'm going to get right with this, i got to start with God. He is the person who my actions have been primarily a mutiny against. I've, the reason why I sinned, I was living as if I was God, as if I was the king. I'm not under a king. I am the king. So first and foremost, I go to the actual king and say, I'm sorry. David says, I've done what is evil in your sight. David isn't measuring himself by his own standards. He's saying, according to your standards, God, I'm, I, I'm in the wrong. He allows God's word to judge him. He doesn't offer any excuses. I, I know it was wrong, God, but like she was bathing naked on the roof. So you should probably talk to her too. Nope. Doesn't talk about that. Doesn't offer any excuses. No rationalization. No justification. He's just honestly taking full responsibility for sin and he's grieving over it. He's grieving his selfish, shallow decisions. And he acknowledges the correctness of God's standards and how right God is to send Nathan to say, you're the man. You've done what is evil in the sight of God. David says, against you in your sight, what you say is sin, God. I'm not going to redefine sin based on what I think makes sense to me. Sin gets defined by God and I live in response to that. Not I define sin and then figure out how God can like participate with my definition of sin in my life. Number three, David offers the entreaty of repentance. Entreaty is not a word you hear very often, but I was using all E's, so I had to find an E word, and entreaty was the closest one to plea. So you've got to just roll with me for a little bit. The entreaty of repentance. Verse 10, he says, Create in me a pure heart. Again, he's not just saying, God, would you just forgive me? Thanks. I'm going to go back to living my same life just knowing that I'm forgiven. That would be an okay thing. David goes a step deeper. He goes, I want a new heart. Would you rip out my heart and would you give me one of those like just clean slate, 3D printed, 
Uh, just fresh hearts. Put it in. Give me your heart. And you put all your DNA into it. Um, create in me a clean heart. It's not just the removal of sin. David's like, you've got to do something from the inside. You've got to change how I see the world. Change my heart so that I no longer desire sin. Renew a steadfast spirit in me. He's like, give me, give me, the, give me the kind of spirit where I'm not just going through life and kind of being like, yeah, whatever. But I'm like, I am steadfast. I am focused on serving you. That's the way I want to live. But David understands that he's going to need a new heart. That's why he talks about, I was sinful in my mother's womb. Even there I was sinful. And again, that's not David's way of saying, well, I was born that way, so what are you going to do? He's not using that to excuse his sin. He's saying, that's how deep my sin goes. I was born in sin. I was born predisposed to sin. So in order to get out, I need you to do more than just pardon me. I need you to recreate me. I was born in sin. I need to be born again. I need a new heart. And you're the only one who can give that to me. David is pleading. He wants more than forgiveness. He wants a new, out of, a new center out of which he lives his life. And he realizes that unless God gives him a new birth, there's only so far he's going to get in bringing honor to God and being the king that he's called to be. And then fourthly, we see David showing the evidence of repentance. Verse 13, 14, 15, 18. 13 says, I will teach transgressors your ways. 14 says, my tongue will sing of your righteousness. 15 says, I will declare your praise. 18 says, I want, he's saying to God, God, would you prosper Zion? That's Jerusalem. Would you build up the walls of Jerusalem? That's, that's That's a call for community flourishing. The walls are broken down. The whole community's at risk. Would you build them up so that your people are secure and vibrant and strong the way you want them to be? And the reason why I say this is so, this is all, this is where Psalm 51 is so ingenious. You know repentance is sincere. You know it's sincere when you move beyond just trying to stop doing bad things. When I was younger, I thought repentance means I'm totally committed to not doing that bad thing again. Here's the sin in my life. It's habitual. I struggle with it. And I'm repenting. I'm going to try and not do that. But David goes in an altogether different direction. He doesn't just say, I'm going to stop doing that. He does, but he says, I'm going to go in the opposite direction. I'm, my, I'm not, the way I'm going to progress isn't by trying to not sin. The way I'm going to progress is by teaching other people how to obey you as I learn to obey you. I'm going to learn to sing. I'm not going to use my tongue to lie and deceive anymore. I'm going to use it to sing and to declare your praises. I'm not going to be focused on myself anymore. How's David doing? What do I deserve? What's in it for me? What about me? When's the last time I caught a break? I'm now about, I want this community to flourish. I want it to be strong. The me, me, me mentality got me into this pit in the first place. And the way out is by focusing on how I can bring my power to bear to help other people flourish, to help other people find life. So it's not just that David was committing to stop doing sinful things. He's recommitting to prioritize God's kingdom. David's desire and commitment is not to just no longer sin, but to grow in holiness. There's an author that I read a number of years ago, and he said, vices are cured by their opposite. Vices are cured by their opposite, meaning if, you, um, if you're a greedy person, if you're very self-centered, 
and you're very stingy with your money. The way um, to become not greedy is not to try and not be greedy and be angry at yourself for being greedy and to shame yourself for being greedy. The way you grow out of greediness is by pursuing radical generosity. You start living a generous life and begin seeing the fruits of that and God begins bubbling those things up in your life and then greed will fall away. Vices are cured by their opposite. And this is what you see David doing. He's realizing the whole thing that got me into this was saying, I'm the king, it's all about me. No, no, the way I'm going to get out is by repenting and now restructuring my life around God is the king and it's all about him and his kingdom. And if there are things that I need as, as, as David, if I'm serving God, if I seek first his kingdom, those, God will give me those right things in God's time. So I don't need to worry about having to try and take hold of them myself. My job is to focus on him and his kingdom. David even says he's motivated to teach transgressors your way, God. He wants to be involved in community formation and building up, which is pretty interesting because if you look at the sins that David committed, they're about as like, massive as you get. If there were any sins that, that were to disqualify someone from Christian leadership, it would be those sins. But David says, if it be your will, God, I want to teach sinners your way. And that's important because what this psalm is telling all of us, but maybe some of us this morning really need to hear it, is that there is no sin, there's no pattern of sin, there's no past that disqualifies you from God's kingdom work, from playing an important part in God's kingdom work if you would choose to repent and seek forgiveness from God. I know as a pastor, there are people who show up to church every week and that's all they do. And part of the reason behind that is they think because of what they've done in their past, that's all kind of they're qualified to do. They kind of live as second-class Christian citizens because they have a really big sin in their past that disqualifies them from really stepping into what God has for them. That's not true. Your past does not have to define your future if you repent. If you turn from your self-centered ways and begin to live in God-centered ways, and David's serious about repentance because he's talking about going in a completely different direction. I want to be about God and his kingdom now. And genuine repentance always takes its shape in some form in helping other people and strengthening the community. When I talk to Christians or people and they talk about their life and, and, and in the process of getting to know them, I realize that there's, they're, they're really not pouring much time, energy, or money into their, even just their local church to bless their brothers and sisters, to build up the walls of their little Jerusalem that they're a part of and make it strong. I always get a little bit concerned. Because one of the fruits and evidences of real repentance in your life is that you kind of become obsessed with wanting to help other people flourish. You want to teach sinners the ways of God. You want to learn. You're not just showing up on Sunday at church. You're getting involved. You're leading a home group. You're teaching Sunday school. You're getting involved in a Bible study. You're serving in some capacity. Also, look at the joy that David points to. He says, my tongue will sing of your righteousness. He says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. I don't like to do this, but if you ever wanted like a more 
self-centered reason why you should repent? It's this. Sin crushes joy in your life. If you just let sin play out and minimize it and ignore it, it will crush joy in your life. Not initially. The Bible is very honest. Ecclesiastes says the pleasure of sin, it totally lasts for a season. But what happens after that season is over? A lot of us know that if you've ever been living with a secret sin or minimizing something that you know is wrong in this corner of your life and trying to live like kind of normal Christian life over here, you just have this increasing suppression of joy in your life. And David's like, I'm tired of living like that. I want full joy. But, but I need you to blot out my sin. I need, I, need a, I need a fresh start. You cannot live in a pattern of sinfulness and experience joy and freedom in Christ. I think we all know that. I certainly know that. So if you want to have more joy in your life, confess and repent more consistently. Just be honest with God about saying, this is where I sinned today. I'm sorry, God. I want to turn from that. Give me a new heart. Continue to change and challenge me to grow. And people think that if you focus on confession and repentance, depending on your church background, that's like a really negative thing. It's going to lower people's self-esteem. It's a really negative thing to be focusing on all the time. Oh, I'm sinful and repentance and confession. Womp, womp. That that's going to be the thing that's going to kill your joy. That's actually not true. That's a thing that gets the garbage out of the way so that you can move into what God has for you. If you're avoiding confession and repentance, that's the thing that will kill your joy. It will slowly suffocate it out. Getting honest with God and saying, against you I've sinned, here's what it is, God. No excuses. I want to turn away and make whatever reconciliation and restitution I need to make. That will lead to more joy. Learning to confess and repent will liberate you. It will free you. So do you need to repent? The question is rhetorical, and the answer is yes. Everybody in this room needs to repent, me included. Because repentance isn't a threat. Repent isn't a threat. It's an opportunity. Repent. You don't have to live this way anymore. Because of God's power, you can live a new way. If you're not a believer here, if you're a skeptic, maybe you're a seeker, maybe you're kind of like, I'm just kind of learning about religious stuff, spiritual things. I need to warn you, you can't even become a Christian unless you repent. The first words out of Jesus' mouth when he starts his ministry is repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. But again, that's not a threat. That's an opportunity. It's turn around. Why would you walk down that path when God's kingdom is now open to you now? Get off that path. Come on this path. That's sucking your joy. That's destroying you. That's going nowhere. And in me, I can show you abundant life. So get on this path. Repent. Turn around. Get over here. Change your mind about me. You have to do that to even become a Christian. You can't even receive the new life Christ has for you until you come to a place where you say, God, against you I've sinned. I've been living as if I'm the king and you're the king and I've been living for my kingdom and now I'm saying that was wrong and sinful. I've been living in rebellion to you. I want to live for your kingdom. That's the start of the Christian life. So any unbeliever in this room is called to repent, but so is every Christian. Everybody in this room is called to repent. Because as a Christian, you can't grow and progress in your life unless you're repenting. Growth presumes you're learning something about God. God is sending someone, word, a friend, Bible study, sermon, someone into your life and saying, you're the man. This is something wrong in your life. God does that to me all the time. And the only way I can grow is if I say, I receive that fully, God. 
I've sinned. Thank you for showing me that. Give me a new heart. Teach me your ways. I could reject it. I could minimize it. Oh, that was probably for the person sitting beside me at church. That wasn't for me. Um, that's not that big a deal. Like, I know it's wrong, but like, we're all human, right? Like, we're all imperfect. You fully take it, and that's how you grow, is by learning to confess and repent. So repentance isn't something that's reserved for unbelievers because it's the daily process of learning to move out of patterns that are self-destructive and into patterns that are God-glorifying and life that, that lead to life and flourishing. Just as a close, I want to draw your attention uh, to one of the lines in the psalm. I think it's verse 7. David says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. In 1 John 1, 9, this is a pretty famous Bible verse. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. But there's some people here who are like, yeah, I get that, like God forgives people, but like you don't understand like my past, Jeff. You don't understand what I did last night. You don't understand what I did five years ago. You don't understand how long I've been doing what I've been doing. So I kind of get that like God is willing to forgive someone who made a mistake. Like, I've really screwed up. And, and I, and I want to say to you, Psalm 51 is a story about a royal screw-up. Like, David royally screws up. And there is hope for royal screw-ups. Your life can be in a royal mess, and God can still come in and bring something good out of it. John in the New Testament can write with that kind of confidence to say, anybody, you just confess, God will do this. Why? Because David says, cleanse me with hyssop. Hyssop was the plant that was used to smear the lamb's blood over the Israelites' door before the Passover. That's what hyssop's used for. So you sacrifice the lamb, blood on the hyssop, blood over the door. That blood is the only thing standing between God's angel of death that he sends um, and you. And it's through that blood that the angel of death passes over any doorpost, Israelites, who sacrificed a lamb. So the blood and hyssop are connected in this ritual of salvation and deliverance and atonement. And David says, if you could cleanse me with hyssop, like with blood, like with a blood offering, because I have blood on my hands. I need a blood offering. If you could cleanse me with blood, if you could atone for this kind of sin, then I would be clean. I would be washed and purified. I'd have assurance that I'd have new life. But David understands his sin is a royal sin. It is a royal screw-up. It is royally um, sinful. So the only kind of atonement that could possibly make up for it is a royal atonement, is royal blood. David has confidence that his pardon can come from God because he knows God's heart. He knows that through a lamb's blood, God saved Israel. Maybe God could do it again. Maybe God could purify him and change him through blood. And then in the New Testament, we see a greater lamb and a greater king and a royal sacrifice and royal blood that can overcome any sin, any past. That's why your sin, your past, whatever it is, it's no more insurmountable 
or unforgivable than David's. Nothing and nobody is beyond redemption because of Christ's blood. So go to Jesus, confess and repent, and no matter how deep the pit you find yourself in is today, he can get you out, and he will get you out, and he can restore you to a new kind of life and a new joy. And that's why the practice of repentance is so powerful, because at its heart, it's not a threat. It's a huge opportunity to step into the abundant life that only Jesus can offer. Let's pray. God, would you create in us a clean heart? Would you give us hearts that, would you cut us to the heart in areas in our life where we are denying you, we're intentionally ignoring you, we're suppressing the truth, we're rationalizing away the truth, God? Would you send a Nathan into our life? Would you confront us in some way, God, in order to save us? And would we go on the journey of repentance, to not just make repentance something that we do once in a while, but it's a posture of our heart before you. And may you use our broken and contrite hearts, God, and remake us in your image. In Jesus' name, amen.